I'm Duncan McLeod, and this is TCS, the Tech Central Show, brought to you by MTN Business. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash techcentral. You can find the show anywhere where you find good podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Pocket Casts. Now, my next guest, believe it or not, started his career as a forklift <laughs> operator at a warehouse in Durban. Today, he is MD of not one, but two critically important businesses in the JSE-listed Ultron Stable, Ultron Carabina, and Ultron Systems Integration. Colin, it's uh, good to see you. Welcome to Tech Central. Uh, thanks for having me. Pleasure, pleasure. Right. Um, your time as a forklift operator was quite short-lived. <laughs> <laughs> and you began your career in IT for yep. the same company. Same company. Uh, which was deploying an IT system at the time, I believe. Yes. Um, just tell us a bit about your career progression and how you went from that warehouse in Durban to where you are today. Look, I, I mean, I, I started uh, a degree in BSc Comm Science. Okay. And I had funding for the first year. And of course, funding ran out in, in year two. So you you got to go and get a job. Right. So I got a job as this forklift driver and kind of warehouse clerk. Uh, kind of did that for a little while. I must say, good grounding huh, in terms of work ethic, getting right. up early, you know, taking the bus, going to work, putting in the 16, 17 hour days. Ow. It was, well, it was, it was really, really good experience for mm -hmm. me. And the company that I was working for at the time, you know, started to introduce some of the technology. They wanted to get their logistics working a hell of a lot better. Mm -hmm. um, and I got co-opted into the IT department and pretty much learned everything from scratch, you know, right. building PCs, uh, you know, running network cables, uh, you know, getting the switches connected. I mean, you when was this? This was 98, 99. Okay. So uh, back then, you know, Novell, Novell was the thing. Novell uh, Netware. Novell Netware. I was a certified Novell engineer back then. Mm -hmm. uh, so I got that certification, started to code a bit on visual objects. So pretty much got stuck into IT, get thrown into the deep end. So self-taught a lot of it. All self-taught. I mean, we had some interesting people that were, there were literally two people in that IT department. Okay. And uh, yeah, and they immigrated and actually left me with that department to run believe it or not, and at, you know, 22 years old, running, <laughs> being the CIO, there was no such thing as CIOs back then, right. CIO of this large logistics company. It was quite a, quite a challenge, but I look back on, on that with such fondness. Yes. You know, the work ethic came in and, you know, listen, you know, a lot of the fundamentals that I learned back then still hold true today, yeah. you know, you still know how, you know, how systems work and how things are put together. So it's, mm. uh, it's been an amazing journey. Yeah, an amazing journey. Yeah, and uh, and after that, I think I think it was after that you you moved to T Systems. Yeah, I was actually uh, there was a company that was helping us um, in the logistics company mm -hmm. to run with the setup of AS four hundreds, and we did some amazing stuff back then, actually. Um, and they they then were about to be acquired by their then Debus, which became T Systems. Oh yes, I remember Debus, a company called Evolution, mm -hmm. and uh, I started working for them and. Literally within a week of me joining, mm -hmm. uh, they had, they'd been acquired by Debus and then be, that became T-Systems. Um, yeah, and I started my career there as a as a Lotus professional, believe it or not. Okay. Uh, you know, the Lotus Notes. Lotus, that Lotus was Notes. bought out by IBM. IBM, exactly, mm. exactly. Is it still around? Does IBM still make Lotus? They do. Would you believe we still have a customer that still runs Lotus Notes? Really? Lotus Notes? You wouldn't believe it. And I remember, you know, back in the day, the, you know, you talk about apps that were built, they were all built on Lotus Notes. Yeah. So that workspace that you had in Lotus. So I actually then ended up becoming a principal CLP in both development as well as in uh, administration. Uh, interesting days back then, you know, mm. uh, running around, all around Joba, getting implementations done, 
making sure that customers took advantage of the new technology. Again, solid, solid yeah. uh, grounding as part of that. Yeah, uh, it was an interesting time in IT. There was a lot happening. Absolutely. And Lotus Notes was, you know, it was the this face was off huge. between, you know, Microsoft and and yeah. uh, and Lotus. Uh, so should we know who, who won yeah. that that race? <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. It was interesting days uh, back then. IBM versus uh, versus Microsoft. It feels like a, a generation ago. Yeah, it, it feels like, it's like surreal to yeah. think that it was think back you know, way back then. Yeah, when. yeah. Like, like launch of Windows ninety five, for example. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great. So you were at, you were at T Systems first as a consultant, but you you were in many roles there. I think you yeah. were even heading up HR at one point. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, I look back on those days as some of the best days of my life. Mm-hmm. Great training ground. I mean, I, I took over a professional services team. Uh, pretty much, I think you'll find this throughout my career, actually, as we go through. Yeah. Uh, pretty much take over things that are slightly broken or broken beyond recognition and kind of piecing it back together and kind of making making things work. Mm. Uh, took over the professional services area as a starting point, helped turn that business around, get it going. Then I got involved in on the SAP side mm-hmm. from uh, application management and uh, uh, maintenance. Um, then I took a, a went into the infrastructure side of the business, ran desktop services, which was over a thousand people at that stage. In the midst of that, we we acquired Arivia.com. You'll remember this. Yes. The, the, Seth Malele. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. And um, Kirubin and the team were were uh, were part of uh, okay. um, Arivia at the time. So we acquired Arivia.com, and at that point in time, I helped drive the merger between the two ITO parts of the business. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the midst of all of that, you know, Mario, who was then the CEO, Mm -hmm. uh, I remember I was being in the middle of Berlin, and she called me and she said, uh, listen, I'd I'd really think you'd be a great fit for playing the VP of HR for South Africa. Mm -hmm. So I went, are you kidding me, HR, <laughs> you know, what, what do you want me to do in HR? And, and it was an exco position. Um, you know, it was, it was, I'd been around in and around a lot of the, the rest of the business. Mm. And I decided to take a, take the chance and take the opportunity to play that out. I mean, the HR department at that stage, believe it or not, was, you know, in the bottom 5% rated inside of the Deutsche Telekom group. Oh dear. So again, mm. you know, one of those jobs you take on, mm. But you know what I found? They were incredible people, uh, people who understood their craft, what they needed to do. And I spent, you know, coming out of business, going into HR. One of the biggest, you know, irritations I think business have with HR is you don't get where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. You don't know, you don't understand my problems. You just want to throw policy and procedure and all these things at me. Uh, meanwhile, back at the ranch, you you really want help from HR to mm. move the business forward. Mm. So that business partnering approach. Uh, was was something that I brought in and I brought structure to that team. I did that job for three and a half years. And, you know, in three years, we we got an award for one of the top three HR departments worldwide. And for me, you know, thinking back on that time, from a leadership point of view, probably one of the best learnings I've gone through. Mm. And I managed to run you know, lots of international projects in between because of the success we were driving from trying to bring business and HR together. Mm. And, and driving the leadership journey. So I ran uh, you know, centers of excellence and competence worldwide for Deutsche Telekom at a, from a group perspective. So it was really great experience um, that came out of that. And then, of course, you know, the, the tech starts to call you back. And then I, I took on the systems integration business uh, straight after that. Um, and, you know, proceeded to, we went through a, a couple of changes. Again, business was slightly broken, mm-hmm. needed to get it fixed. Uh, we acquired a company called Intervate at the time. I don't know if you remember yeah, that. Yeah, I remember company. that deal, yeah. Yeah, mm. big Microsoft company. Uh, 
you know, brought them into our stable and kind of built this new systems integration department and got that business up and running and kind of moving, made some really good uh, strides into healthcare. Mm-hmm. We built a template on SAP and which a number of the number of those those uh, hospitals and clinics still continue to use our mm-hmm. solutions. So had you left uh, T-Systems by the time the Gajima acquisition happened? Yeah, well, long all, before that. Long before that, okay. So the Gajima acquisition, I think, only happened in sort of 2021, somewhere around Oh, there. was it that recent? Yeah. Okay. Um, I left T-Systems in 2017. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. Or was it to go straight to Ultron? Yeah, straight to Ultron. Oh, straight to Ultron, okay. In fact, uh, you know, I, I got a call from from Mteto as he was joining. Yeah, and that's Mteto and Yati, the former yeah, group Group CEO, mm. and I joined the company actually as the group shared services executive and group CIO. That's right. So I went from a completely, you know, externally customer facing, consultancy faced uh, business um, into taking on an internal role. Mm. Um, and frankly, to be honest with you, I mean, within the first three months, I mean, Ted will tell you this as well. Uh, I thought I'd made the biggest mistake of my life mm-hmm. joining this company. You know, coming from this rigid well-run, well-oiled, exceptionally professional organization yeah. into Altron, where effectively we had a holding company mm-hmm. and a bunch of companies that that we aggregated earnings around. And kind of coming into this business, you know, to take on this group shared services and pulling, you know, HR, finance, <laughs> IT, all of these things together, you can ima- well imagine, you know, a company that's largely run autonomously over a long period of time. Mm. It was quite difficult uh, coming in. So I, within those three months, I thought... Uh, did you did you make the right call here? And and frankly, uh, you know, after getting past my initial shock, etc., starting to work with the people on the ground, working with the businesses, understanding what we did, man, completely fell in love with the business. And you know, spent three years kind of pulling a lot of the standardization processes, real estate, etc., together. Um, and it really held me in good stead. You know, sitting sitting in that role as the group CIO making decisions around, you know, going down an ERP route, yeah. uh, standardizing on CRMs, uh, getting your network harmonized, et cetera. You know, I never understood, actually, the real challenges CIOs faced sitting on the outside as an external consultant. Mm-hmm. Now sitting in front of the board and having to, you know, explain why you're doing X, Y, and Z and why you want to move solutions forward, uh, it really prepared me for for what was what was to come. Um, give you a very quick yeah. uh, insight into the, how the business operates, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, being at group level, one of the things that, that helped me tremendously is firstly get to know each one of the businesses yeah. and the incredible capability that we had across the board, get to know the people uh, and the connection of the dots and how that worked, mm-hmm. um, and also trying to bring our collective offerings together. I mean, during that time, actually, uh, interestingly enough, this is all, I mean, I, I get bored really quickly. Okay. So, uh, one of the th- I always take on like kind of stretch assignments as part of that, and one of the things I actually ran was running the acquisition of Carabina, mm-hmm. so from start to finish, um, and you know engaged with those guys, brought that acquisition in. One of the other pieces of work I helped pull together was kind of start to tell some of the story around Altron, and kind of the capability that we've that we had, um, and that that for me was just you know it's really really incredible. I mean. I think in, the, in your in your discussion with uh, with Werner, you would have started to understand kind of the capability that we have from an Altron perspective, and largely this market does not understand what we do. Right. Um, but being in that CIO role and then stepping in, you know, Carabina went through a difficult time, um, and we had to make some changes. Post acquisition. Post acquisition. Mm-hmm. In fact, when we acquired them, they were really doing exceptionally well. What went wrong? Within 
I guess, six months of them joining us, one of their core customers, yeah. I mean, which accounted for about 30 to 40% of their revenue, uh, then really went into difficulty mm-hmm. and distress. And effectively that funding, you know, just went went out of the out right. of the door overnight. Now, if you, you know, 30% of your revenue you lose, that's structural. Yeah. And frankly, I, I think we, we didn't make uh, the right decisions. We didn't take out cost quickly enough mm-hmm. from the business. We didn't restructure sales accordingly. Um, and so, you know, in that year, as I st- stepped into the role, um, we ran at a 16 million rand loss then. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was tasked to go in and kind of fix what was what was there. I mean, incredible. Again, you know, you know, part of one of the things I always find, you know, quite quite uh, interesting is as you go into a new job, you know, everyone's got an opinion about all the people that are in there, you know, <laughs> and how they are and who they are and what they're about. And they say to you, you know, I think that's a good guy and that guy, you know, you know, let, let, let's make some changes. I always find it important to just step in, kind of get a sense of lay of the land yeah. and see how people operate. And sometimes you find the gems of people that are there mm. that have just got the best capability in the world, but just need to be led well mm-hmm. and being given direction. And frankly, largely that team that I inherited, we, we stayed intact. And we, we had to fix a number of things. I mean, a number of projects were in trouble, uh, the sales sales pipeline was was not where it needed to be. We needed to rejig our relationship with Microsoft, and and we put all of these building blocks together. And we you know in the first year we turned that business from a minus minus sixteen million rand to a positive sixteen million rand, and we were able to change the change that business around and you know continue to win awards and started to grow the business quite dramatically actually over that period. I mean in that year I think we grew the business more than forty percent from a revenue perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and stepping into the you know, the last last year's financials as well, um, you know, we grew that business yet again. Yeah. You know, to get to twenty three million, forty four forty four percent also jump in in earnings uh, in this past year as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. That business does incredible work for our customers. Incredible work. Now you're also running Ultron Systems Integration. Yes. When when did you take over that business? Now you're running both at the I'm same time. I'm running both at the moment. That's yes. a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> I think you need to say that to be honest. No, I, I'm actually enjoying it. Yeah. I, I'm loving it. Uh, I think part of the challenges that we had as Ultron is kind of connecting the dots between the businesses. Mm-hmm. So if you look at our, how we are we are putting ourselves forward now, we talk about us being an IT services arm and a platform arm. Mm-hmm. There are very few businesses that have got both. There's very good ID services players, players out there and very good platform players out there. But we've got um, ID services that we've now pulling together. And, and frankly, connecting the dots between the systems integration business, I took that over in October last year. Um, again, for the last few years, has not performed the way that it, that it should have. Had to go some, through some very difficult restructuring and reordering okay. the business, getting the go-to-market together. That whole systems integration market seems to have been going through very difficult times in the last few years. I mean, some, there are some some specific examples of self-inflicted wounds in this industry, like EOH. Yes. But um, but generally speaking, the, 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 the systems integration market seems to be a very tough space to be in right now. Is that a fair assessment? Yes and no. Mm-hmm. So, yes, in the sense that I think chip shortages and the supply of equipment over the last few years has created difficulty. Because mm-hmm. if, if you look at the core of an IT services business, you need to have the core on outsourcing in place and your core customer base, and then you build capability in and around that. Mm. And you start to build uh, business out of that by doing tech refreshes for customers. You know, and you know with the non-supply of equipment coming in and customers now also st- starting to take a step back because they waiting to make these investments, mm-hmm. it starts to put the systems integration business under under pressure. 
And it's a, you know, scale matters in these businesses. Yeah. So if you start to have your revenue shrink uh, and, and kind of not work out, you are going to continue to be under cost pressure. And then, you know, the worst case scenario that you end up in is you can't save yourself into, into uh, profitability. You can save up until a point, but you've got to make some really bold steps forward mm. around building the business and how you're going to take uh, offerings to the market. So on the one hand, yes, it cre it's created difficulty, but on the other hand, it's created opportunity. I think, you know, in the last period, customers have, as much as they're under cost pressure, yeah. if you can show benefit around either, you know, helping them on the revenue on the top line or taking costs out of their business, you are in a position where you can actually gain more business than you would ordinarily not get to. Mm -hmm. So it is tough trading conditions, mm. exceptionally tough, but you can find opportunity through, through, through that process. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I take some of the work we've done, I mean, a large bank that, uh, that we, we do a lot of work for, I mean, they manage a lot of the cross-border kind of uh, money flows using lots of administrative kind of, you know, uh, um, documents, et cetera, that you have to fill out manually and kind of get them. And it, there's a process that goes. We were able to automate that using a lot of different things from OCR to AI to ML and took 10,000 administrative hours out of their process on a monthly basis wow. by just automating what they did. So where the bank is under pressure from a earnings perspective, just creating this opportunity of taking that administrative burden away, they can now refocus some of those people on growing their business as opposed to just you know getting the the mundane things done. Yeah. Then you take another example. I mean, one of the one of a, a large telco that we work with, um, customers churn on a month on a monthly yearly basis all the time. Mm -hmm. This business they were churning around one point eight billion rands worth of contracts on a year to year basis. We built a propensity to churn model, okay, with them, using lots of different data sources and uh, you know, new handset coming out, CPI, uh, customers credit record, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we built a model that we were able to accurately predict when a customer was about to churn in three months. Mm -hmm. They added a billion Rand back onto their bottom line or onto their revenue line by just being able to hang on to those customers because they now could make proactive offers to them, yeah. you know, get into a position where they would say, what, what if we reduce your, your, you know, your contract to this? What if we gave you this? What if we added this handset in? And making those offers allow them to be able to retain that kind of revenue. I'm really interested in what you say about, um, about uh, the opportunities, even in a tough market like this. Uh, mm. and, and companies are looking at cost-cutting initiatives and areas they can save money. Is there a risk, and are we seeing this happening in mm. the South African context, given the state of South Africa right now, that companies are perhaps invest, not investing enough money in, in IT, that the, where they are investing it is on cost-saving initiatives, whereas perhaps companies in other markets around the world are investing for innovation and growth. Yes. Maybe our companies here in South Africa are in, investing to keep the lights on. Mm. Your thoughts on that? I think there's a mixture. There's some real big leaders in the, in the market at this stage that are, are taking the risks and have the courage to make the decision around growing their market. Mm -hmm. And it, again, in, in the midst of really, really tough trading conditions. Which industries do they tend to be in? Particularly in financial services and, and insurance, we're seeing a big uptick in that. Okay. Retail, interestingly enough, as much as the retailers, I mean, with all the results coming out recently, yeah. the retailers are also finding ways now to say, how do I get access to market a lot quicker? How to make it less friction frictionless for customers to buy? so that we don't lose what we currently have. Yeah. I think there's, there is an element of protection that's happening around the current base that people that customers have. 
there are a lot of uh, innovation and technology that's being used to be able to protect that. Mm. Um, let me give you a, a, a weird example outside of uh, what's, what's at play and talk about pragmatism, right? I was talking to the city official recently and uh, we we're talking about all the technology about smart cities and what we could do. And, you know, we've got incredible telematics capability in our NetStar business. And if you look at the data that we have there, we can talk about, you know, the quality of roads and yeah. you know, where the potholes are and blah, blah, blah. And you can have these dashboards that talk it through, et cetera. I had this discussion with the official and he said, that's really great. Amazing. You know, we can invest in all of this technology. But you know what? We've got a thousand calls coming in on a day-to-day -day basis. Our customers, our citizens mm -hmm. are telling us mm -hmm. where the potholes are. Mm -hmm. So I don't need a fancy dashboard to tell me that this is, the, this is where the problem is. I, I know where the problems are. Mm -hmm. Our issue is around the efficiency on how we run our teams. So a team will go out and try to fix a pothole and there might be some unrest or protests or whatever in that area. They currently don't have the capability to be able to redirect those guys to a different place so they can drive, you know, and still continue to build on that. Now, what they told me is, is quite a simple story. Sometimes we try and solve problems in the wrong areas. Yeah. It smells and sounds like this, but actually there's a much more pragmatic solution to go and, and rather look at efficiency within your team rather than you know, these fancy dashboards that kind of are in play. Mm -hmm. And I find the retailers are so innovative with that is concerned. They know exactly, they smell the opportunity. They know exactly how, what problem to solve as opposed to being seduced by mm. what technology could or couldn't do for you. I guess they're traders at the end of the day. So Absolutely. They, yeah. I mean, if you look at the margins they operate mm -hmm. I mean, you've, got, you've really got to be on point to be able to do that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Very, very interesting. Now, there's been talk for years in this market about consolidation of the system integration market in South yep. Africa. And um, uh, uh, yeah, everyone I, I spoke to for a period was saying, yeah, with this guy, they're going to be big deals. They're imminent. They're coming. Yes. They're going to be these deals. But they, it's very little seems to have actually happened. I mean, Ultron's made some acquisitions in the space, but there's, there hasn't been any sort of blockbuster deals that mm. everyone was predicting. Um, is it ever going to happen? Are we going to see consolidation in this market? And if it does happen, how is it going to happen? And what role is Ultron going to play in it? Mm. Look, ours, our, we've got a very, quite a simple strategy. Mm -hmm. um, firstly, if you look at the squeezing of the current lemon that we have, uh, lemon's probably the wrong word. Let's use, let's use orange, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, you, if you look at the, what, what we've got is uh, untapped potential inside of Altron as it stands right now, there's significant opportunity for share of wallet inside of our current customer base. Okay. So if you take the IT services businesses, we've got a number of key customers that we service across multiple pillars, but they generally only buy one product from us. Just taking advantage of the current customer base that we have with the capability that we have, we can move the needle quite easily organically, mm. right? And, and therein lies our opportunity and the connection of the dots between our platform business and our IT services business, I think creates the opportunity for us going forward. And there's lots of legs that we can gain in there. While some of our competitors falter or market conditions change, we've got a strong balance sheet. We've got strong uh, resources and capability in our organization to take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. Our strategy is quite simple. We're not interested in buying earnings. We are interested in buying and building bolt-on capabilities. Okay. So where we have a lack of capability or we see an opportunity in a specific space, that's largely where we're going to go after opportunity. And, and sometimes that might include going into a different market. I mean, uh, you know, from a Southeast Asia point of view, there might be great opportunities from a telematics perspective for us to take advantage of some of the potential acquisitions that could happen as part of that process. That's getting you know market share in a new market for us, but largely our strategy is not to not to chase earnings, not mm -hmm. to chase 
you know, uh, gone acquired. And, and, and these things, you know, sometimes they look, they look great on paper. Mm. Having gone through one myself personally, I can tell you the pain and uh, misery that you go through mm. before you start to see the benefit. I mean, you, you are distracted for two years. Yes. Especially if you've got this big acquisition that happens. You know, integration needs to happen. People jostle for jobs. Then, you know, service delivery suffers. Customers then get, can get irritated with you because your quality of service is not going in the right direction. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, disadvantages that sometimes come from a great idea of potentially bringing, you know, double, doubling the size of your business overnight. Mm -hmm. But you need to be so deliberate around how you do that and what you do and what you put in. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I think our strategy around largely looking for capability to add and bolt onto our business, I think is largely the, great, the right way to go. And also just taking advantage of what we currently have. Yeah. I mean, 99% yeah. of this country do not know what we do. Right. We help this country run, you know, and I, I say that unapologetically uh, with the kind of areas that we play in. We help the unbanked get banked. We, uh, you know, the capability with NetStar on the telematics side, things, I mean, the work that they do around saving people's lives on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, you can see I'm passionate about this, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. I really love what we do and, I'd really love for the rest of this country and, and consumers and customers to know what we do and how we do it. Right. So those Bolton acquisitions you do, I mean, you mentioned uh, possibly over, doing something overseas. Yeah. Um, I imagine the bulk of your revenues, from certainly from Carabiner and Ultron System Integration, it's are local. Domestic. 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 Uh, how, how important is it to you to, to uh, internationalize your revenue, uh, given the state of South Africa right now? Is it a risk being so exposed to this market? Look, I mean, we can't shy away from the problems that we have yeah. in the country. I mean, uh, if you just look at all of our customers are under pressure, look at the retailers losing billions when yeah. it comes to load shedding, et cetera. So the, it's going to start to become a constrained market from a trading conditions point of view. So I think our lens that we look at from a local conditions point of view is to say, as conditions become tougher and tougher from a trading point of view, those that are in the market that aren't able to service them, there's opportunity for us to gain market share mm -hmm. where that is concerned, mm -hmm. right? So, so it, is a, it is a little bit of a, we're in a strong position and we want to take advantage of the strong position that we find ourselves in and to gain market share as we move forward. Um, if you look at, uh, I mean, we've, we've divested largely from the, you know, the African operations. And if we look at capability across, you know, we, we are going to look in, in, in Europe, we are going to look in the Benelux region, and we're going to look in Southeast Asia from an acquisition point of view for us to have some of those earnings play out. But our, again, our stated strategy, the bulk of our earnings mm -hmm. should come from our domestic market, which is South Africa. Yes. We're a proudly 58-year-old South African company, and our roots are here. We are invested here. And the bulk of our revenue and what we do with customers and our people are from South Africa. Yeah. And we want to be recognized as that, and that's something that we're really proud of. Mm -hmm. And we'll continue to invest heavily into the into the country. And as we mentioned, we had, uh, as you mentioned, we had uh, Werner Kapp, your uh, yeah. group CEO, on uh, on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he he was very positive. Uh, I would say cautiously positive about uh, South Africa's prospects. Yeah. Uh, um, which is which is good to hear uh, at sort of leadership level, as I think many South Africans are very pessimistic about where we are. Yeah. And so it's good to hear that coming from a from a corporate leadership perspective. And I actually want to spend the rest of this yeah. discussion today talking about leadership because it yes. is actually so important. And I want to talk a bit about the, your leadership style and uh, what you what you're bringing to Ultron. But I also want to talk about it from a country perspective. Yes. And what needs to happen 
to fix South Africa, and we'll get to that. Yeah, uh, what will no doubt be quite a meaty discussion in a few I'm minutes. Sure. But let's talk about Ultron first. Last year, I think it was last year, you launched something called Through My Lens. What was that about, and and what were you hoping to achieve with it? So Through My Lens was a series that actually was born out of a conversation I had uh, with, the, with the head of our marketing team. Okay, I was telling him a story about my my son, and uh, you know we went, we actually took him. Uh, you know, he hasn't, you know, there's no such thing as initiation as the, in these days in certain cultures. Mm-hmm. It certainly happens in certain cultures, but not in all. And uh, I ended up, you know, deciding with my son that we were going to have a, you know, do this initiation ceremony with him. And he chose, and I said to him, you know, what would you like to do? And of course, he said party or whatever the case may <laughs> be. And uh, I said, no, look, let's try and do something different. Let's let's sow into your life. Let's try and, you know, build you up as a young man and see how things move forward. And as much as a, as your dad, you you know, uh, I don't know everything. I, I won't admit it openly to him. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, pick pick some people in our circle, in and around you, that will sow into your life. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we took him away, and you know, night the morning, every single person shared their own personal story and kind of gave some life lessons into his life. And on night number two, he had to play back to them of what gift he was given by each of these individuals, mm-hmm. right? It was such a beautiful, blessed experience, to be honest with you. And it, it was a, a source of healing also for all those people around the table. Not only it started out being something for my son, um, but it was something that sold into life. And the life lessons that came out of there, I mean, I was listening to them and, you know, life is not always going to be amazing. Uh, you, you know, you've got to put a, have a plan in place. You've got to have a specific lens in the way that you look at things. When I started to listen to the lessons that came out of that and the midst of the journey that I was in at Carabina at that point, the parallels were were incredible. So, you know, we decided to say, but why don't we just, you know, as we are walking this journey and kind of fixing the business and going through different things, why don't we set up a series and share some of these, as we, as we go through the journey, what are some of the lessons that we are learning? And for me, from a personal point of view, and my purpose in life is around, you know, why God put me on this earth is, is to create opportunity. And that opportunity is around potential learning. And so we started to put this this series out um, around different leadership lessons that I learned along the way, hoping to reach an audience and to influence corporate South Africa and general citizens for that matter in a way to look at leadership differently mm-hmm. and to and to take courage and to look at look at things with different uh, different eyes. I mean I remember the one the one piece we did um I was listening to uh, uh, 702. I mean, by the way, I mean, 702 listeners sometimes, you know, they really want to tell you what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> they really want to share what's going on. And uh, the one caller ca- called in and just, you know, started to talk about potholes and the, and then, the you know, the state of the, you know, the litter in the area and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And then in the, the afternoon I, I read, you know, there's a, a group I, f- I follow called I Love Four Ways on, fo- uh, okay. on, on Facebook. And the one person said, this is the worst this country has ever been in. And look at the rubbish in all these areas, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And then you must know, that's when sharks start, like, you know, everybody now adds. It becomes like a story. That's when you mute mute the group. Mute the group, exactly. (laughs) But the one lady came in Mm -hmm. and she said, I hear all of this. Okay, guys, I'm willing to coordinate and set up time, this date, this time, in our neighborhood to go and clean up. Mm -hmm. Okay, you must see the noise just went away. People went, that's a great idea. Let me jump in. That community got together and cleaned up the area mm-hmm. where that was concerned. Mm-hmm. Now for me, 
this is the this is the difference between what good leadership what looks like and what it doesn't look like. Mm-hmm. We, we've, we've got enough people telling us what's wrong. We know what the problems are. What is it we personally can do about it? And my challenge to everyone that I, I speak to in my own life, in my own family as well, is to challenge ourselves. If you've got nothing good to say, okay, and it's not going to help our agenda in terms of moving forward, rather be quiet. Rather say, what is it that I'm potentially going to do going forward to be able to fix the problem? We can blame government. We can blame our leaders. We can blame all of these people. But if we don't do our bit to be able to make and change the fabric of society, then we failed as leaders. You know, our jobs in our business right now is to ensure that we grow our business. We grow our business, we create more jobs. We allow more people into the active economy and we're able to create a new economy that looks, looks at, it's something that we can be exceptionally proud of. Now, as um, we invited, we, you know, you have, we take in, you have internships on a, on a yearly basis, okay. right? We had a whole bunch of people that went through a one-year program and uh, two weeks ago, I you know, went into this uh, discussion where we were converting them into being permanent people, mm-hmm. right? And instead of going there and going, okay, welcome, you know, great, welcome to the co- company, et cetera, I decided to have an open, honest, personal conversation with each person. And I asked them what this meant for them. And I must tell you, I almost brought to tears because some of these people have been through 20 internships before then. Wow. And they're, you know three months here, two months there, got kicked out, they moved on, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. And finally, they now are permanent employees. They now are able to support their families. You cannot believe the impact it had on those people. Mm-hmm. I walked out of that room going, you know, you can start to become depressed about life, but I went, I came out of that room going, I have an opportunity as a leader to really grow this business so that we can do more of that so that more people's lives can be impacted in a positive way. Mm-hmm. You know, the dignity of having a job and being able to contribute to society for me is fundamentally what leadership is called to do. And the courage to do that is what I challenge most people out there to come, come out. Mm-hmm. Don't tell me about what's wrong. What are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. How are you going to change the, the fabric of society? Sorry, I'm, I know I'm a little bit... I suppose I'm just, just thinking, uh, listening to you and, 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 and thinking of you, for example. You're, you're a leader within an, within an IT organization, a major IT organization here in South Africa. You've got, you see challenges everywhere. The biggest challenge in this country is arguably ESCOM right yeah. now. Um, how do you or, or me as leaders help address the ESCOM problem, for example? It just seems too big yeah. uh, for an individual to try and tackle. So given the state of load shedding in this country, how do you, Colin Govender, address that issue? Look, I, there's no easy answer on these mm. things. If, uh, if it was simple to fix ESCOM, we would have fixed it already. Mm. And we've got the collective brains of South Africa now applying their minds to try to fix some of these problems. My role in this is to say, in the midst of all this chaos that's at play, what is the opportunity that we can create for our people to live through some of the crisis, okay? Does that mean creating the opportunity for people to earn enough money to get inverters so that they can still continue with their lives while we figure out how we solve the ESCOM problem? There are a number of technological solutions that we've put forward as part of that. I mean, if we just look at the efficiency management on the grid that could be managed using some technology solutions, we have the ability to be able to do that. Now, of course, the dialogue that we have with ESCOM is open and honest to say, how can we assist in such a way that we can actually avert some of this crisis going forward? We must do our own personal bit as as corporate South Africa 
to also lessen the load on the on the grid where it stands right now. But these problems that we have at Eskom are fundamental and have been around for the last 20 years. Mm. So it's not something that's going to be fixed overnight. It was a lack of decisions actually taken 25 100%. years, 20 years 100%. ago that got us into this this mess. 100%. You know, also coming back to maybe drawing a parallel mm. to this, talking to that city official that was talking about potholes and everything that played out. You know, sometimes as, you know, you, you can have a lens on life that says, you know, I'm middle class in South Africa, you know, I'm going to afford solo, I'm going to be able to put it it doesn't solve the problem of the everyday man mm. and w- woman and child in, in the street that is not able to afford any of these things where that is concerned. So fundamentally, I mean, we have got to do what we can inside of the what we have influence over to make a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, is it a fair, you know, to asking me the question, what can we, what can we do about ESCOM? What we can do about ESCOM is to help try and grow the economy so that more funding becomes available for us to solve the longer-term problems mm-hmm. that, we, that we live with. Similarly, whether it is in the freight part of the world, whether it's service delivery from a municipality point of view, I mean, the kind of work we do, and if I look at the impact that we make in some of the municipalities and, and cities and the kind of money that we save them with the solutions that we have, mm-hmm. that for me is creating an opportunity for them to become that much more efficient. But it requires courageous leadership to act on these things. And that's where some of these decisions, I, I sometimes wonder yeah. why people don't have the courage to make the call, which they know is correct. Yes, yes. I, I think that gets to the crux of it. Uh, Absolutely. Do, do we have a, a lack of leadership in South Africa? Do we need more leaders? Or are our leaders just not being tempted to go and work in the right places, like yeah. the public sector, for example? I mean, <laughs> it's actually a good question, right? I mean, if I just look at leaders I've been exposed to over over the years, whether it's at customers or, you know, within our business or across the board, I don't think we have a um, a lack of competent people, mm-hmm. right? I think we've got incredible people. I think over the years, what's happened with, you know, the, the institutions that we have, they've denigrated to the point that it doesn't become attractive mm. as a leader to go and plow back into, back into society. And I think that's where some of our, exceptionally well-trained leaders that have that have been there, done that, I think there's an opportunity for them to step up and play that role mm. now and step into those roles. I think the, the second piece, <laughs> it boils down to political will to make the hard decisions, to say, we need competent people in these positions. That for me is the important thing. Just because you've got some generic kind of experience that you've got across the board does not necessarily mean you're fit for purpose for the particularly the a specific role and that's where we need really fundamentally competent people to step into these roles whether that's in corporate south africa whether that's in business whether that's in in the municipalities we need people that are, have been there done that have got the experience to be able to drive drive our country forward that for me is i think where i think the we lose the plot yeah because appointments are made politically and or in different ways and frankly we need to always fall back on competence as being the core of driving this or our, our, our country yeah, forward. Yeah. It just makes me wonder how um, uh, uh, people are appointed within organizations and within government um, that perhaps lack this leadership capability. Um, what, how do you, 
I mean, how, I suppose it all starts at the top. You've got to have a president who makes the right decisions. I'm looking at the public sector. Yeah. You've got to have a president who's willing to make the tough decisions, have the political will to do that, mm. and point the comp- right and competent people below him in his form of his ministers and everything below that. And those ministers, with their, if they're competent leaders, will then make the correct appointment, one assumes yes. below that. And everything kind of trickles down from, from the top. And I suppose it's the same in an organization like, like an Ultron, for example. Absolutely. The C, group CEO, in this case, Verna Cup, needs to make the right decisions that – that trickle down to everyone in his organization uh, or the leadership team, or certainly the leadership team around him, mm. uh, he needs to ensure that they are competent and capable of making decisions, the right decisions. Yeah. And, and then it all flows through the organization and kind of everything just it rises, all lifts all boats equally, doesn't it? I, I, I agree partially with your answer, okay. with, with, with your, your proposal. I think there's an element, obviously, obviously the tone gets set from the top. Yes. Right. However, as individuals and as leaders in organizations, you can also take a stand yourself. Right. Not waiting for somebody else to provide the leadership to you. Yes. And if you know what is the right thing to do, then go ahead and do it. By the way, I think that's what, why most, mo, how most organizations are successful. Mm-hmm. They're not successful only because of the CEO mm-hmm. coming in and setting the tone of how things, it's important, mm-hmm. set the direction, they set the strategy, they help pull it together. But the success is built on actually you know, there's nobody else coming. You know, it's you. You are the person sitting in that seat. Now, do what you need to do, what you believe is right, right for the company, right for the country. Make those calls and move the, move things forward. That's Don't clearly for not somebody. happening today in the public sector. Yeah. Why is that? You know, in my experience, again, I, I we've engaged with a number of key organizations. Um, and, I, you know, I don't really want to mention names or anything. But sure. they are significantly competent, incredible people that are in government at the moment Mm -hmm. that are hamstrung by process and procedure and, and the rhetoric that's, Mm -hmm. that sometimes, you know, pollutes some of these places, but they're incredible people there. Mm. So, you know, the general and frustrated people, I've engaged with them. I engage with them all the time. Frustrated. Uh, Want to get things done. Exactly. Want to move the, want to think, move things forward. And some Mm. of them are successful Mm. in doing it, Mm. you know, shouting into the wind, but they continue to have the courage to do that. Now we need to have more and more people step up and say, I'm tired of just, you know, sitting back and waiting for something to happen. Mm -hmm. If we've got the bulk of those leaders that are in government at the moment, actually stand up and do their jobs and start to get involved. I think, and and because you don't have to be told what you have to do every single day. You know what your job is. Yeah. So take a stand, be courageous and and move. Well, hopefully you know what your job is. (laughs) Of course, of course, of course, of course, of course. How how important is accountability in all of this? And and what does accountability look like? If if I just look at my own leadership style and um, kind of how I operate and accountability for me is at at the core of everything. Mm. So when I work with people, I, I work with people around you're a, you're a senior person or you're a person that I can work with. I give you the benefit of the doubt and I trust you to do what is required of you. What for me, I, I th- where trust is lost is when you make a commitment and you miss your commitment, mm-hmm. but you don't manage the expectation. It's simple things like that. It's like, if I say to you, I'm going to give you a document on Friday at 12 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And you know, 12 o'clock Friday comes and goes, but I didn't give you the document. You then call me at one and you say, Listen, God, where, where, where is the document? So I'm, I'm still busy with X, Y, and Z. I'm still, mm-hmm. whatever. By that time, you irritated with me because now I've missed a commitment and there's a lack of trust now between us. But if I called you on Thursday evening and said, you know what? My daughter's sick. I really didn't have the opportunity to play this out. Yeah. 
I'm managing my expectation. Things are going. I'll deliver it to you, but can I give it to you at three o'clock, mm-hmm. or can I give it to you on Monday? Ninety-nine percent of the time, you're going to say, "You know what? I understand. Stuff happens. It's okay." Communicate. Communicate, and manage those expectations as we go along. I think what what happens far too often, and this is where lack of trust comes in, is you you make a commitment and you don't deliver on that, mm-hmm. and then you have to you don't manage it well. That's when trust is eroded. So when I look at accountability, I look at that as being primary accountability. Part of my um, uh, my secret sauce of how I, I lead is I end up pushing people beyond what they think is possible. Uh, they don't sometimes like me through that process, but at the end of something, their real their full potential is being realized. Mm-hmm. And through that process, how that is built from a confidence point of view is them taking accountability for their own careers. And also driving things forward. Mm-hmm. I've got a role to play, but it's individuals stepping up and saying, "I own this. Nobody else is coming. I'm going to do it, and I'll execute on this, and I'll do it with excellence." Then you make the next step and the next step. So, so coming back full circle to your question, you know, what about accountability? What about the leaders? What about public sector? We've got a long road ahead of us, and we've got to we've got to make sure that we start to make these decisions accordingly. Yeah, I think corporate South Africa is starting to have a strong voice and influencing government in a, in a, in a lot of ways. And we need to continue to keep that up and we can't, we can't be quiet mm-hmm. and allow this to happen. We continue to put our voice in there. We're not naive about the challenges that we face, but again, I also go back to everyone and I say, you also have an individual role to play. What can you do? So broadly, and I know this may cover some of the ground we've already covered, but just to to conclude, uh, Colin, what is it going to take to turn this country around? We're in a bad place right now. Um, the key is leadership, and you've 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 touched on a lot of this. But maybe, what are the first big wins that you'd be looking for to get this country back on track? I think you know making a dent in the in the current energy crisis that we have. Um, I think would be a, a really great starting point. Um, you know. The renewable projects, those projects that have been held up for so long, that are now starting to become go into development, I think is a is a good first start. It's not going to solve the problems across the board. the The maintenance and the management around Eskom and how that happens going forward, I think, is an important part of the puzzle. Because really, energy drives growth in our economy across the board. No matter how you know you can do whatever you want, we need energy to grow this economy. Yeah. That for me would be the fundamental first step that we would need to have. And I think there's enough eyes and attention on Eskom right now to ensure that we have some levels of movement. I think the recent appointments that have been made on the board there and and kind of pulling that organization together, I think they're getting to the crux of where the issues are and what, what lies ahead. Yeah, It is going to take time. Mm-hmm. And while that happens, as corporate, in, in my own view, the Altrons of the world need to continue pushing the envelope pushing technology solutions, driving outcomes for customers, ensuring that we create jobs so that we can still keep this economy going. Colin Govinder is Chief Executive of Ultron Carabiner and Ultron Systems Integration. Uh, fascinating insights. Thank you so much for spending time with Tech Central today. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Colin.